The Latino population in the Catholic Church is the fastest growing population, but it's also the fastest declining. When I when I think about that, I'm like, what an opportunity. And then if you think about even lay ministers within the church that are Latino, how do we help support them and help them grow in their apostolate? And then from there, like the, La the lay Latino leader in, in our communities, not only parishes, but in the secular world. Like how do we help them grow so that we can infiltrate those industries with Catholic values? We're all called to grow in our intellectual, spiritual, and human dimensions. How can leaders help others bring these capacities to their fullest potential? In this week's episode, campus ministry leader, immigration advocate, and executive director of the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders, Rosie Shaver, shares her vision of how leaders can bring people from apathy into a closeness with God that can set the world on fire. Working for an organization like Call and working with an organization like Call is so critical because Latino leaders who are on fire with their faith are going to be the game changers around the country, whether that's professionals that exist now or young professionals that are coming through, right? How do we build them in, into leaders so that they can be future board members or when they become future CEOs of companies, right? Um, they're the ones who are going to change that apathy into something that's beautiful. It's not going to be me. It's going to be Christ moving through them. By participating in the life of the church, we can each discover the purpose God has for our lives. And by knowing and loving Him, we can become the leaders that will bring renewal to the whole world. This is Living the Call. Rosie Chinea Shaver, welcome to the show. I couldn't help but over here. I did over here. I went to the restroom, and as I'm closing the door, I overheard you talk about how you were in at adoration and you prayed, and like, boom, that happened. Oh, it's insane! I mean, the way that Christ moves in my life, I, I mean, sometimes I'm just floored by the way that that He moves. So in that particular time, so I was at the Catholic Center, and we had staff adoration. They still mm -hmm. have it every Tuesday at 9 a.m. And I was just in adoration at the Caruso, at the Caruso Catholic Center, yeah. and I was just in like staring at him and asked him like okay lord if this is the time like i'm ready to go if, if this is it and literally that night i got a text message from a friend with this job opening at call and i'm like holy moly like <laughs> this must be like a sign right instant answer instant right and so i applied for the position and you know four interviews later mm -hmm. which i was just being myself i was just being natural and like like listening to who god called me to be sure. and yeah, it, it just felt like the right move. Um, a hard move, don't get me wrong. Like I've been in college campus ministry for 15 years. Wow. So to transition from college students to kind of a broader audience, it, it's a shift, but a I'm ready pivot. for it. And I'm really excited just I to bet. kind of see how God moves in all just of this. Just that whole like difference in kind of campus living and the environment that you're in and kind of being in these different watering holes has got to be an adjustment, I would think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I mean, but it's it's fun to see how God shaped what I did in the past and mm -hmm. how I did it and how he's using that now into the future. Uh, so learning about missionary discipleship and what that looks like in college students and how that translates into professional life mm. and how that's lived out for professionals through call. And then how are we going to expand young adult ministry also through call? Because that's a huge hole in our church right now. Like there are strong college campus ministries, yeah. but many parishes don't have anything for young adults once they leave college. So That's what true. does that look like? You know, one of the things that I've remarked on like a lot more now that I've started to get out into the vineyard, as it were, I spent my whole career in this kind of secular world. And over the last few years, similar situation with me, I've asked the Lord, like, what do you want from me? And he's increasingly brought me in contact with these apostolates and organizations and whatever. And what I've noticed, like one big thematic is a seeming lack of kind of integration and collaboration, connection between all these various um, apostolates, ministries, nonprofits, et cetera, out there. And not that it's perfect in the secular world, but there's, you know, even designations like frenemy and coopetition to dictate the fact that like, hey, even if you're in similar fields, you work together because you can get faster, you can go get go faster together than you can apart. And I wonder like why that is or or, or what what can be done to change that. Well, for me, it's just like, what is the mission of the church, right? Mm -hmm. The mission of the church is evangelization. It is to bring people closer to Christ and grow in relationship with him. So within the church, shouldn't every organization have that same mission and vision? And shouldn't we all be moving in that same direction? So what does that look like, you mm. know? And then how do you collaborate when everybody is moving that in that same direction? And that's just the way I see it. Yeah. Um, so how, how are we as call 
going to be doing that for professionals and young adults? Like, how are we going to be forming missionary disciples so that they can grow in their professional life, they can grow in their family life? They, can, I mean, it, it kind of yeah, goes on, sure. right, depending on the hat that they wear. Yeah. Um, but what does that look like? How do I bring in an organization like Focus, for example, yeah. into the mission and vision of call as well? Because we have the same vision, right? Grow the church. 100%. So then how— Curtis, Curtis, Curtis Martin just spoke at uh, Napa at the conference I was at. I just sent him yeah. an email, too. I was oh, like, cool. okay, yeah. how can we collaborate? And I'm going to hopefully— Great talk, by the way. Oof, oh, I believe man. it. Like he, yeah. Light up the sky. For sure. Um. Yeah. So how how do I help bring in these organizations so that we can all move the needle in moving that into that direction? I'm mm. I'm just really excited to see that happen. What do you think it is, Rosie? Is it is it more like um, everybody's just we're very focused on the individual mission that everybody has? Is it a I don't see what the benefit would be of cooperation? Is it I don't have the time? Does it vary? I mean, why 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 don't more naturally I guess these different organizations and apostolates take after what you just described, which is like this evangelical mission and like, let's just get out there and work together. Like, why? Uh, I think it lack of clarity of vision and mission, honestly. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if everybody has that clarity of what their, uh, what their mission and vision is. Mm. Um, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Um, I, so I'm, I'm the national chair of um, the Catholic Campus Ministry Association. Oh, okay. And that has been an incredible opportunity where I've seen the collaboration happen from a national level. Uh -huh. So SPO, St. Paul's Outreach, um, Focus, as well as Evangelical Catholic and, and the Catholic Campus Ministry Association. And then, of course, all these like campus ministries around the country come together under the same mission and vision of helping grow missionary disciples on college campuses. So in mm. that light... I'm able to see something functioning, right? right? And your purview is different. You're kind of like able to see all these things at the same time. Maybe individually they can't see each other mm -hmm. in the same way you can. Exactly, exactly. Wow. So that's my hope with Call is that yeah. I'm able to help bring together all these other organizations that I might not even be privy to right now because I'm so new to the position, yeah. right? And this is a new field for me. So. For sure. Well, so take me back to this. Okay, so first of all, I'm fascinated by the whole sitting at Eucharistic Adoration and you get this sort of like insta boom you know, opportunity could be a huge door opening for you. I had something similar with the diaconate, by the way, just so you know. I was walking out of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, and I had been praying about the diaconate for a while. And just really, because I didn't know anything about it. And I went, you know, my, I told my wife about it. And I walked out of St. Patrick's, and I looked at my email, because that's what I did when I got out of Mass every time. I used to go to New York like 40 times a year. And email number one is my wife going, hey, there's this uh, diaconate information day thing. Do you want to go? And I instantly replied yes. Like it was like right away like that, right? And then the rest of it has been kind of synchronicity. So I've had a similar experience to you. But when you got that text or email, whatever it was, right? And they're like, hey, there's this thing. Like walk walk me through it. Like you see this and I know you're Latina as well, which I, I didn't know all the details of, but I mean, we've talked about that. But uh, what what's your thought process in this when you get this and you're like, okay, this is interesting. This is uh, something I could do. So I'd been a member of Call for three years. Um, so I'd, I attended their galas. And when I got that text message from my friend, I was just like, you know, I was reminiscing upon the galas I had been to prior and was just thinking to myself, like, that felt like family. That mm. felt like home. And I was like, I'm going to sit with this. And I'm not a person... I love stability. <laughs> yeah. So being at USC, about that. Yeah. <laughs> being at USC for nine years, it, it was incredible. Like, and I, I, I saw what I saw within that time frame. I was able to help grow a ministry, sure. which was incredible. Um, and I, I wasn't quite sure if that was like if it was the right time, but I knew that at that moment when I got that message, and I, I had that sense of home, that it was something that I had to pay attention to. And praise God, I had, you know, three months to really discern the process. It wasn't something that was like instant. Like Thrust I knew. upon you. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I got to know the organization a little bit more. I got to talk to different people on the board. I got to pray through it. Um, I got to talk to my family about it. I, um, I have a really good friend who was my boss, Jamie Capetta. When I talked to him, um, because I needed a, a reference, right? Like it was a very hard conversation for me because I didn't want to leave the Catholic Center, especially mm. working for him. But when he said to me, like, this is an opportunity that you probably should take, mm. even as a boss. Yeah, I huge. was just like, holy moly, like huge. really? <laughs> it was like a really good boss. Yeah, no, that. he's incredible. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. So, I mean, I think it was just something that happened over time. It wasn't something that I was like, oh, I'm all in automatically, especially because I had built my career in college campus ministry. But when... When God kind of moved in my mind that the apostolate is larger than what I was doing at USC yeah. and that what he had done in my life was going to propel me into some, it, propel the church into something else and something greater and I could be a part of that. I, 
I just got really excited. Um, and something that I'm I'm also really excited about. I'm like a structure person. I love figuring <laughs> it's out. It's going to serve you well here. <laughs> yes. I love figuring out mission, vision, priorities, strategic planning, awesome. uh, uh, fundraising. I mean, all this stuff like really excites me and that doesn't excite everybody. Not at uh, all. Yeah. Especially not in this world. At least that's <laughs> what I'm coming to find out. It's like very much like, oh, we do this. It's like, well, what's your plan for the next two years? Like, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. Okay. So I'm excited to dive into that. There is a strat plan already that's in place, mm -hmm. but I, I need to dive into it. Make sure that it's where we need to go because it was created pre-COVID. Uh, so I've, I've started dabbling in some of that already. Like one of the areas is to create... Um, like a fundraising plan for the organization. So I'm going to walk into a partnership with Petrus Development sure. to help create that uh, for call. So I'm really excited about that yeah, partnership moving guys. forward. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, That's again, cool. what I've kind of yeah. grown in in the last 15 years is going to help us move this organization forward. Now that you're on this side of it, I mean, I know I love the idea of kind of feeling at home and going to the galas and all that stuff. But, you, you know, now that you're on this side of it, the, the premise that was always interesting for me around call and what Archbishop, for those who don't know, Archbishop Gomez and Archbishop Shapu um, started it about a dozen or so years ago, something like that. But the thing that always attracted me, and I want to love your thoughts on this, is this idea that, you know, everyone is obviously precious. We all have dignity. Everyone is important, each individual, but there is like a time and place. And right now in this country, the idea of bringing up and supporting and allowing Latino leaders to know one another, network with one another, maybe has some particular importance, right? And I love that just idea. That idea was really interesting to me. Now, having now known Archbishop Gomez for a number of years and hearing him say things like the Latino population or the spiritual heirs of Juan Diego, like all these things, like now I get it, the way that he's thinking about it. But I'm curious now that you run it, like, right, where is that, um, like, how do you view that, right? The importance of this group of people like where does it all fit in right in terms of where we are right now as a country absolutely and a church yeah, yeah yeah so you know the latino population in the catholic church is the fastest growing population but it's also the fastest declining or leaving Correct. and growing like in the nuns um so for me like when i when i think about that i'm like what an opportunity Amen. like and it's it's just very exciting to think about this like the strata of leadership also right so you've got the latino bishops that exist and how can we help them further their mission within their diocese and then if you think about even lay ministers within the church that are latino how do we help support them and help them grow in their apostolate and then from there like the the lay latino leader in in our communities and par and not only parishes but in the secular world mm -hmm. like how do we help them grow so that we can infiltrate for lack of a better term yeah for sure um in those industries with Catholic values. But but that term, though, I mean, I, I appreciate you saying, like, you know, maybe there's a better word. But, I mean, sometimes those are the words, right? I've used maybe not infiltrate. I've used detonate, things like that. But there, it's really important to think of it that way. It's like, well, if this is, if there's a strategy, there's a plan, the military kind of view of this thing, then where are your battlefronts? Where are the, the areas that you can, you know, kind of detonate, how you can outflank the enemy? And we do have an enemy. So, like, you know, all those things make sense to me. And I think that that idea of, well, this infiltration, although for the gospel, to me, seems remarkably positive and fruitful, potentially fruitful. Absolutely. And it's exciting. It's exciting yeah. to think about that, even with the few interactions I've already had with some of our board members. Like, not only do they have a hunger and desire to continue to get to know Christ, but they want that for their teams yeah. also. So how do they do that in an ethical way? Um, and how do they do that in a way that, you know, <laughs> their careers are still going to be functioning in, in a healthy way? What were you doing before USA? Um, so I prior to working at USA, I was two years at Catholic Charities okay. um, in Albuquerque. So the Archdiocese of Santa Fe. And then prior to that, I was in, uh, director of campus ministry at the University of New Mexico. Did you grow up in New Mexico? No, I grew up in Oxnard. So in let me tell Oxnard. you my story yeah, a little please. bit. Tell me. So yeah, grew up in Southern California, born and raised in Oxnard. Mm -hmm. My parents, my mom is Puerto Rican and my dad is Cuban. Uh, really grew up kind of in a bicultural household. I was going to say, is that the only Puerto Rican Cuban household in all of Oxnard? It's got to be up there. <laughs> nah, that, I think there are others. There's others? Yeah, there's others. Okay. Yeah. But really bicultural. I mean, mm -hmm. I well, and I didn't speak English until I was five years old. I only spoke Spanish mm -hmm. until I was five. It was like me. I hated the idea of even learning English. It was like I fought it. My parents tell me all the stories. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. No, I, I don't know if I fought it. I think I just went with the flow. Um but anyhow, so yeah, I we went to two parishes actually growing up. I went to Our Lady of Guadalupe, which was primarily Spanish speaking, and then we went to Santa Clara, 
which was primarily English speaking, got most of my catechesis through Santa Clara, but we would go on Sundays to Our Lady Guadalupe. So even even like spiritually, like I yeah. was very bicultural, which was very, very interesting. But that dynamic you just described is also very prevalent. I've found it in a lot of the work that I've done now for some of these organizations. It's this idea of the duality of the Catholic experience. There's like this deep, deep, deep affinity for the Spanish language liturgy and why wouldn't there be? But for people that, especially those who, have, who are you know really very serious about their faith, there's this other kind of uh, aspect where they've maybe, maybe where they've learned their catechesis or their theology or whatever it is that sometimes is like another another facet. It's not exactly where the Spanish liturgy was, but it's this other thing, whether it's an organization or a book they read or an author. And it's interesting to have that kind of bicultural experience because, you know, growing up here as a, as a Latino kid, you would. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, even though my parents were very, they were very involved in the church, mm -hmm. like we would go to Las Mañanitas oh, with our Lady sure. Guadalupe. Yeah. We would... We would do everything. My mom was, um, she ran food pantries out mm -hmm. of our local church. Um, they were engaged couple, like they helped with engaged couples. They were on parish councils. I mean, they did everything. I wow. just remember playing in their in the church parking lot, listening to YouTube music and just kind of hanging out. Right. Um, and, but I never really had a, a deep encounter with Christ when mm. I was a kid. I just didn't, I didn't really care. I mean, it, it, being frank, like I just didn't care to, and I didn't really put that, I didn't have that desire in my heart. But one day, so this is like these God moments, like I said, and they've just kind of like trickled throughout my yeah, life. Yeah, for sure. So um, I was in my room and I really wanted to go to UC San Diego. Like that was my dream school. I Why? wanted to be a doctor and I knew that was the school to like propel me into that. Okay. Into that career. Um, so I, I was laying in bed and I prayed. And this is the only time I remember praying as a kid. I, I prayed and I was like, if you get me to UCSD, I promise you, Lord, I will go to church every single Sunday. So <laughs> lo and behold, I got in. But I didn't go to church. Yeah, keep up your end of the bargain. <laughs> yeah, I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, freshman year trickled around and I struggled on so many levels, which is typical of freshmen, right? I was away from my family sure. and that was really hard. It was three hours away. I was not doing so well academically. Um, and I, finding friends was just difficult. Like, so it was very, it, it was a challenging time. And then I met a Cuban girl uh -huh. and she just relentlessly started inviting me to come back to church. Really? Yeah. And were, were you conscious, though, when you made your prayer and you felt like, it, okay, you got in, were you conscious of that being an answered prayer? Did you think about it? No, I didn't it? even think about it. Okay, so no. you made, you remember making the prayer, then this thing happened, but you didn't kind of put the pieces together. I didn't, which is kind of sad. I mean, but it, it is what it is. <laughs> Just curious. Yeah. God so, is so patient. Yeah, absolutely. And thank goodness for that. Amen. <laughs> yeah. So Cuban girl. Yeah, so I met this Cuban girl, Michelle, and she just relentlessly kept on inviting me to come to church. And I, I went, I showed up and I fell in love. I, I just fell in love with the community. I think that's where it started. And then this priest, Father Mark Pedraz, Dominican of the Western province, really great man. At one point, I'd probably been going to church for less than a month. And he said, body of Christ, Rosie. I'm like, what? Like, this priest knows my name? Like, how did that happen? And wow. how does Christ know me? I mean, somehow I made this like theological connection of like, yes, the priest, but God knows me. And then, I mean, there was no turning back at that point. Like I, I kind of like, at my sophomore year, I knew I wasn't called to be a doctor anymore. And I knew that like I was called to work in the church and I felt a deep call to college campus ministry. And hmm. it just started that trajectory um, of working in the church. So I, I graduated from UCSD, took a year off. I worked on the border in El Paso, Texas with migrants at a place called Annunciation House. Wow. Um, just providing food, clothing and shelter, but then knew I needed the language of the church. I'm sure that's also been a timely background for you to have during all the things we've been dealing with lately. Uh, it's I, I'm just very, I'm grateful for my parents because mm -hmm. of their migrant experience. I'm really grateful for my time at Annunciation House, and then now moving into Call also, like, and it beat a passion of Archbishop Gomez is something that I'm really excited to see where that goes because I, I haven't had a conversation with him about that yet. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I've sent him an email. I'm like, okay, how can we work together? <laughs> so so we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, but I'm excited to see kind of where that where that leads us. Were, were your parents born in Oxnard or were they born in PR in, in Havana and no, uh, Cuba? My dad was born in Havana and okay. my mom was born um, in San Juan. How'd they get to Oxnard? What's their story? So my dad was applying for work. Um, he worked as a civilian for the military. And they came originally to California or they went, they got to California through another U.S. port. So my dad, he left Cuba when he was a kid, mm -hmm. went to Spain um, with his parents, but they couldn't get a work visa. So they ended up in Puerto Rico. And my parents met. It's got such a it. crazy okay. story, too. Like my dad at the age of 14 knew he was going to marry my mom, marry my mom. 
And so he kept on following her around and kept on asking her out. And she kept on saying, no, I can't go out with you. We're too young. We're like kids. But he kept on like pursuing her and they ended up together. I mean, it's just insane. Like wow. he just knew it. Um, but again, yeah. that's just the way God works. So they met in Puerto Rico and then they got to California. Correct. Correct. Wow. Yeah, it's yeah. super interesting. I haven't run into too many in the too many Cubans out here. Probably less Puerto Ricans, but it's and, and certainly none together. So that's a great <laughs> background. And your last name, Shaver. Yeah, so that's my husband's last name. So okay. Chinea is and Chin, well, even Chinea, the, the your maiden name. That's from Spain that's uh, from, originally. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Um, so my my dad's side, I and I made sure to keep the maiden name because my dad doesn't have any boys. Right. So I wanted to make sure to keep it. It was important to me. You know, I'm thinking. I'll tell you a little confession here. So I, um, it relates to what you said about uh, the Eucharist and the priest calling you by your name, because I think that's really interesting. At this conference, I got a chance. The, the one we just were talking about at Napa. Um, I'm not going to mention any names, but I'll just share with you that I got a chance to actually serve at Mass, which is awesome. And these are these beautiful masses. They're ad orientum. There's incense. It's like all, all these incredible trappings, and it's gorgeous, and it's also an incredible location, right? But there was one thing, and it had been so long since I've said, you know, um, the, one of the parts that corresponds to the deacon is to tell the congregation to give each other the sign of peace, right? You can offer each other the sign of peace. And for whatever reason, I mean, I think maybe I was so focused on doing everything else right, that when it came to that part, I said something like, let us offer to one another a sign of God's peace, something like that. And one of the, the, the sacristans there, amazing people, all of them, love them. But afterwards, took me aside and opened up the, the, the Roman Missal and showed me the rubrics and says, like, you know, Deacon, just so you know, the, that this is, these are the options that you have available. That wasn't one, the one that you used. And it was so interesting because to me it was a, like, look, I, I'm like you. I love structure and I love, like, all these different things. And there's, there's a why in all of these. There's a reason for it that's beautiful, right? But God allows certain things and that he, he can make good from them, right? So I'm not, a, I'm not advocating for any changes in the rubrics at all. So it was an important reminder to me, hey, stick, you know, stick to the script, kid, and let's not try to get creative, right? Number one. But number two is in what you just shared about the priest saying the body of Christ, Rosie, that's also a deviation from the rubrics. But in that particular case, God used that to such incredible impact. And he's so frugal. You know, he uses all of these things, right? And I just, I'm struck by that because I've never heard a story that, that mentions that as one of the reasons why somebody draws closer to the faith. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was uh, something that just, it was a shift, mm. you know, and I, I knew that it was something that God was just calling me at that moment. Mm. Um, he called me by name, right? Mm. And I I just, I mean, I, I think shortly after that, I volunteered to be an assistant producer to Godspell, which I had never read a gospel at that point, nor had I done anything in like production in that in that regards. And But I just said yes, and I just knew that I wanted to dive in, became a student leader, yeah, and it just kind of propelled me forward into into the life of college campus ministry, which was really a blessing. Did you know what you were sort of gaining and giving up at that time, like this whole idea of medicine? And I'm sure you had some notions of what that could be and perhaps lifestyle or whatever. And like, you're, were you conscious of putting that aside at the time or was it just like, I don't care, I'm just doing this? <laughs> I mean, I, I was conscious. I think my parents were more so. <laughs> I bet. And they were like, what are you doing? And I, I remember my sophomore year telling them, I'm going to change my degree to like religion and archaeology. And my mom's like, no, you're not. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, fine. I'll just listen to you and I'll stick through it. Um, but I, I kind of knew and I, mm. I don't know why. Like I've just been somebody who I'm since then, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I just desire to follow Christ and financially, like position wise, like God's going to take care of me. And I, I don't know why I have that innate trust and I, I don't want to question it. Like, it's fine. Like, I'll take it. Amazing and gift. I mean, it's even like, like we live here in Southern California and at some point what we were here, we had like a friend tell us like, you should like look at actually buying a condo instead of continuing to rent. And I'm like, that's not going to happen. Like I work in the church. Like, what are you talking about? And we looked and we found a place that we could actually afford in El Segundo. And I'm like, what is this? Like, this wow. is all God. And I, so it, it's just those moments of like, listening to God and just f being faithful to him and recognizing that that faithfulness will produce fruit um, in his time. Like it's never in my time. Um, so I'm, I don't know. I'm just grateful. Well, if there's any sign of God's miraculous ability, it's finding an affordable place in El Segundo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's gotten completely out of control out here <laughs> yeah. in Southern California. Yeah, I agree. No, that's, that's super, super interesting. Yeah, I love the idea of putting all of our faith and trust in God. It's, it's certainly something I struggle with. It's definitely, I mean, I think I'm not the only one, but, you know, the idea of just 
kind of laying it all out, you know, at the, at his, you know, at his feet, the providence of it. Um, we're up in Northern California this week, as you know, and, um, you know, there's like the trees and the sequoias and all those different things. And, um, the name Sequoia, I looked it up cause I'm like, that's such a cool name. And I had a woman named Sequoia Sierra on the show and I've never looked up the meaning of it, but it means sparrow in the Cherokee language. And the sparrow from a biblical standpoint is this the great passage where it's like, hey, the sparrows are given everything that they need. Like our, you know, God gives them to eat and he dresses them and all this stuff. And he loves you so much more than those sparrows, right? He provides for you so much more than, um, you know, than just the little birds. And despite the fact that he does obviously provide for them, but that idea of abandoning yourself to God's providence, that is like, thanks be to God that, that you have that more innately perhaps than I do or other people do because it's such a great gift. Yeah. And I, I think... You know, I've learned a lot from my husband and that was something that was so attractive for me about him when we met. Mm -hmm. We um, so our, our story is pretty crazy. Like we met on a trip to South America. Um, there was where he was in. So he was in college campus ministry in Cincinnati. Oh, OK. And I was in, uh, in Albuquerque at the time. And Mary Knoll was doing this trip to Peru and Bolivia. So I emailed the group and was like, hey, like because I, I never take vacation. Like it's just. A bad thing that I I'm like I just don't do that I don't but I should not the things to say in an interview yeah exactly exactly so anyhow um so I had all this like vacation time racked up so I was like okay we're gonna extend our ticket and I he and some other girls said that they were gonna extend their ticket too so we also traveled to Argentina um and in Peru and Bolivia we were able to see all these like incredible campus ministries and really the difference between college campus ministry in South America versus North America um but after that trip with no question, he just like left everything in Ohio and moved out to, to Albuquerque to, to, he knew he wanted to pursue me. He knew he wanted to be with me. Um, and that kind of abandonment, I think I learned a lot from that, you know, and I, I, I like really admire that. And that's just the way he is. Like he's, yeah, so he's a real blessing in my life. And I've just, it's, it's been fun to see how God moves in his life and, and for me to grow through his discipleship mm. also. Now, why did he particularly choose to go to Peru and Bolivia for that, for that trip? I think so. He has a real desire also to get to know the Latino culture. Um, so he's um, even before you. Oh, even before me. Uh, so he just kind of grew up. He's German Irish background. Uh, so he just wanted to get to know the culture down there and he loves to travel. Mm -hmm. So those were just some of his real desires. Uh, I'm a bit of a fan of etymology and like trying to find, you know, last name histories and all that stuff. And yours was a little bit tricky. So for that, because normally I could just I can hear him and go, oh, I think that's this. You know what I mean? But with uh with yours, it was tricky, so that that helps me understand that. But he's not; he has no Latino in his Nothing. in his background. No, no. Does he speak Spanish? Or he uh, learns he speak tries. Yeah, yeah, he tries. He, yeah. I think he speaks better than he understands because people speak a little too fast for him. Mm -hmm. But but he has a real desire. I mean, we've been to Puerto Rico twice just to visit my family. I actually wouldn't marry him until he met my family in Puerto Rico. Good for you. Um, so nice. that was something that was important. One of the places I grew up was St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. Oh, nice. And so we used to go to San Juan all the time. You know, we had a little twenty foot little center console boat and we would just you know go out there on the weekends but it was great to grow up on the on, i mean it was like formative years for me on the island but puerto rico is a special place in my heart because of those particular trips mm. and it's such a it's a great mix of like yeah it's for sure caribbean but it's got these like you know these very historical sites and like just i love like history i love touching stuff and going wow this has been here for two thousand years you know or whatever it is in that particular case but do you get back quite a bit uh, we used to go often when I was a kid, mm -hmm. um, but we've only been twice since Mike and I have been married. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to go soon. My 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 godfather's getting a little older, and I just really really want to see him. Mm -hmm. um, so hopefully, within the next year or two, we'll be able to go again. How often? I mean, I want to talk about two other two quick things um, related to to the to the uh, Peru and Bolivia trip. You mentioned that there is there was a difference there, like a you know in terms of how they did their ministry work and how and how so I, I definitely want to touch on that but i also want to touch on your divinity um education and how that's played a role in the work that you that you do maybe more recently but are doing now for sure so let's start with the first one about like what what were some of those differences that you picked up on in the way that things were done in south america and just how how that experience changed what you do yeah so what i found primarily interesting was College campus ministry here in the United States, I see it as a lifeline of the church. The students see it, not all, but see it as like secondary, right? Like, okay, I'm here to be a student first. And then if I have time, like I'll get involved in the local parish. In South America, 
it literally is the lifeline of the folks that are a part of their college campus ministry because those are places for advocacy and finding work and advocacy and like making change with, with whatever's going on politically in their local area because it it's so ingrained in their culture yeah. like faith faith in life that it allowed for a, another level of it being a platform um so that was just very different and i had ne- i I hadn't experienced that here in the U.S. And, you know, did that change the way I did ministry here in the U.S.? Mm, probably not, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Yeah. Um, because but the contrast is helpful in any case, just absolutely, to know that. Absolutely. And it, it showed the importance on another level around the world, what college campus ministry looks like. And granted, I don't know much other than my experience that I had there in Southern in um, South America. Um, but it would be interesting to see what college campus ministry looks like in Europe and other places. I know Focus does have some branches in Europe, and from what I've been told, it is much more like it is here in the United States. Um, but what does it look like in places in Africa? You know, yeah. what's it look like in Australia? Like, it, it, that would be really an interesting project to look at. It is. And it's important to also get at the core insights of the differences, right? Because doing ministry in these different places and among different people, well, you need to do it in a way that's going to be most effective for them, right? One of the things that hit me a while ago, because I grew up, I think I mentioned to you uh, when we spoke earlier, in a number of different places. I was born here, but grew up in Mexico, in, Ar- in uh, Venezuela, in Argentina, in the Caribbean. And, you know, one of the things that struck me when I was talking to somebody uh, not too long ago was the idea of how um, clergy is viewed in these different parts of the world, right, relative to their material needs, as an example. So the material needs of a parish. So for instance, here we're very good about tithing, right? Um, and the idea, that the reason why is because we look around and we're like, well, there's all these people here who are basically, um, you know, doing all these services and they're volunteering. And so like we give our, we give our, our, our sort of part to the church. But in a South American context, the, the thing that was brought up to my attention what that, that I thought was interesting was this idea of, well, that's you know, that's the, 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 the clergy, that's what they live off of. And it's like, we don't need to do any more support for everything else because they're doing it all, right? So as long as we take care of them, all these other things are really not that important. And it was interesting to me because if I was sitting there as, as a person living in a, in a different country, um, then maybe I wouldn't be as compelled to want to support all these other ministries and, you know, apostolates and whatever, because I think, oh, the church has this, right? And the church, and the, the, not, not just even the church, but the priest specifically has this. And that's why we're putting the money in the basket for him, because he's taking care of all this other stuff. So the whole idea of like kind of stewardship was different from a South American context. And I think if you know that, then, and you're trying to minister, you can adapt a strategy to better be able to tackle those things. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So I think that like initial understanding of something is pretty critical before you can actually go out there and you know, put forth a, a plan. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Did you, um, did you grow up very religious? No, I mean, well, my parents were very, very religious, but I was not really, yeah. I would just attend, go through the motions for lack of a better term. One of the other things that, that was my experience in, in South America, I don't know if you would say the same thing was that sometimes the faith can disappear because it's so woven into the culture. Is that, if you come across, in other words, like for me coming to the States, I was like, Oh, I have to pick, like, I have to be a Christian. Like my friends aren't, you know, the work that I started to do, it's not necessarily reflected there. Nobody has a crucifix on their desk. Whereas in South America, at least in Colombia, maybe that's my family background. It's like everywhere. You know, you walk into a restaurant, they've got like a little, you know, nook up above their thing. And there's a, you know, our lady and other stuff. And it just seems more part of the culture. But then it also kind of, um, people take, I, I think I did, I took it for granted. It was like, some other kind of like Latino food. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, what comes to my mind is like, it lacks the encounter component, right? Um, Hmm. the encounter with Christ, like how, when, when, when culture, I mean, and I've seen it. Yes. I mean, to answer your question, I have seen kind of that it's, it's just there, like it's in front of you all the time. But like, since you don't have that personal relationship with Christ or you haven't had that encounter with Christ, it doesn't stick the same way 
that if you would have had that kind of personal encounter does that make sense yeah of course yeah, it does yeah. we keep going back to these things because they're fundamental yeah. right i mean it's like man if the one thing our protestant brothers and sisters get right it's that idea about a personal relationship yeah because they just say it rinse and repeat rinse and repeat do you have a personal relationship with jesus and that is really the beginning yeah the foundation of all of these things yeah it's personal relationship done in community i mean that's what we see it in the catholic context, that's right. right that's right <laughs> yeah. solidarity and subsidiarity yeah. yeah we're both and yes exactly yeah. okay so what about the divinity background like, I mean, I know you had this in collegiate kind of moment where you're like, okay, medicine, and now I want to do this sort of church yeah. work. Did you think that theology was just going to be helpful in that regard? Like, why don't you do marketing or something else and still do the church stuff? Well, so I was at Annunciation House um, doing work with migrants on the border alongside them. And I just realized I needed the language of the church. I'm like, if I'm going to work in the church and I, I can't speak the language of the church, how is this going to function? So I, I started, that's where I started to apply for my MDiv. And I, I had seeds of that, right? In my undergrad, I had... Father Mark, who I had mentioned earlier, sure. he had kind of put, laid that foundation and that seed. And um, a good friend of mine was also applying to get her MDiv at that point, too. So it laid that foundation. And honestly, when I first went in, I thought everything was going to be like Henry Nowen. Like, I, I didn't realize that, like, Rahner existed and, mm -hmm. and there were, like, much more heavy theologians that I would have to jump, in, jump into. Um, but, yeah, so it was, it was eye-opening. And it was incredible going to the Jesuit School of Theology up in Berkeley, too, because there were... Folks up there who already were doctors, like there was a guy who was a full out medical doctor going through the MDiv program. There was another guy who already had his PhD in philosophy going through the program. So we were all over the place when it came to yeah. uh, our own backgrounds. But I learned so much and I am in communication with them just trying to like, like, for example, an area of growth that I think a lot of our theology schools could grow in is in the business side. Um, so how yeah. how can future administrators or future pastors really grow in the management component of the church. And I think that needs to be integrated within our theology degrees. And that was just a, a whole. However, I mean, I came in with no theology background, really, other than, you know, my Henry Nowen. Right. <laughs> and so what I got during those three years full time, it, it, I, it was exactly what I needed. Mm. You know, I needed to dive into what is Vatican II? What are these documents? I needed to dive into Old and New Testament. I needed to learn about ecclesiology and canon law. Like I needed everything because I, I knew that I was going to dive into the world of college campus ministry, which like any job in the church, right? You need all those skills For sure. on top of the administrative, the fundraising and everything else and marketing, right? Um, so yeah, it, it, it was an interesting journey and I'm really grateful for that. And then my hope is that next year, maybe the year after, because this is like, a new job for me, so I need to pace it's a big myself. Year. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do want to get a PhD in nonprofit management, um, specifically looking at like what does what does our church need when it comes to nonprofit management, um, and how does that integrate with ecclesiology? How does that integrate with canon law? And how can we move our church forward in a really holistic way when it comes to transit? Um, when it comes to transparency and accountability. I just, I mean, I have a real desire to kind of learn and grow in that. And I also hope that call can be a model in those areas. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I need to lay that foundation first, probably before I jump into a PhD. For sure. But that's, that's a real desire I have in my heart. What do you think are, as you look out, right, you've got obviously this great background and you've got this very practical experience, but also the theological piece to speak the language of the church. You've got all of the work that you've done with young people, with other people, with immigrants. I mean, you've got all this incredible background, right? But when you look out at what our challenges are, the challenges that we have, maybe across these different vectors, spiritually, you know, ecclesially, what are, what are the obstacles that you see? What are the challenges that you see? Apathy. I mean, just off the bat, it's just apathy. Um, so how do you get people to move from like just not caring or mm. not like thinking or looking at what they do through the lens of the church, um, I think that's probably the hardest one. Because how do you move somebody from that to like loving our Lord and wanting to do everything, they, their whole being moving that towards yeah. our Lord and, and what he's calling them to do? That's probably the hardest. Because if you can move somebody from being apathetic <laughs> to oh, being on yeah. fire, like you know, that's a game changer. What do you think drives the apathy? Oh, that's a great question. I, I probably, that's probably multi-layered. Um, I mean, it could be they've been burned in the past from mm. 
it could be a lay minister it could be clergy it could be anybody right mm -hmm. it could be something they read in the news that's like not formed correctly it could be anything right like they could have been burned um or them not seeing the connection between the spiritual and like secular life so it's again it's it's catechetical in that in that component um so how for me it's like i don't yes looking at the problems is good but for me it's like how do we move it like how of do we course. help people yeah like recognize the beauty and the grace of our lord and what he has given us and and for me that's through example um and that's why i that's why working for an organization like call and working with an organization like call is so critical because latino leaders who are on fire with their faith are going to be the game changers around the country whether that's professionals that exist now or young professionals that are coming through right how do we build them in into leaders so that they can be future board members or when they become future CEOs of companies, right? Um, they're the ones who are going to change that apathy into something that's beautiful. Mm. Um, it's not going to be me. It's going to be Christ moving through them. Amen. Yesterday I was uh, walking through the Oakland airport and there was two things that I remarked on. One of them was there was this lounge called Escape Lounge. Okay. And it was like a bar basically, but everybody was like, it was sort of sealed in all. It was like, I don't know if they've smoked cigarettes or whatever there, but it was, it looked like a prison and it was called Escape Lounge. Thought it was ironic. And then right down the hall, I saw everybody um, plugging their devices to charge them, sitting down along the floor and plugging their phones in to charge them. And I was thinking, wireless devices, but tons of wires. Escape Lounge, but looks like you're trapped, right? And I was thinking about this and uh, you, you just brought that image to mind again as we're talking about apathy. Because, you know, my thesis is we have a ton of distraction. And, and what I wanted to ask you was, do you think that the apathy, has that, when you got into this, would you have answered the question the same way, do you think? Apathy? And if you did answer it apathy, would it have been to the same degree that you see now? Like, how are you feeling that, that that's changing or evolving? That's a good point. I think over time it's probably gotten stronger, unfortunately, because of the distractions and the distractions. And there's so many areas of distractions, right? Like whether it's media or news or just the devices that we have. Yeah. Um, and I I struggle using the word like that social media is a distraction because I think that it could be a tool of evangelization. Of course. Of course. Um, but it can also be a distraction if it's an addiction, right? Like that that's a problem. Um, so there are there you know, the devil's really good at this at creating more distractions for us so that we don't pay attention to our Lord. Mm -hmm. So so this yeah, I think that you're right. I think you're you're spot on that there are more distractions now than there were 15 years ago. I got this book. Uh, I underlined something earlier and I thought I wanted to share it with you because of your background. Um, the book uh, is uh, The Power of Silence by uh, Robert Cardinal Sarah. And just one little line, I'm just starting the book, so I have no idea, but it says, solitude is the best state in which to hear God's silence. For someone who wants to find silence, solitude is the mountain that he must climb. And then he goes on and he says, uh, but alas, worldly powers seek to shape modern man systematically to do away with silence. He says, I'm not afraid to assert that the false priests of modernity who declare a sort of war on silence have lost the battle, for we can remain silent in the midst of the biggest messes and most despicable commotion, in the midst of the racket and howling of those infernal machines that draw us into functionalism and activism by snatching us away from any transcendent dimension and from any interior life. Mm. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, you talked about being in Eucharistic adoration. What a moment of silence and solitude with our Lord. What a moment to focus on him and, and avoid these distractions. But like, that's beautiful. And that's a great gift that you, that you have. But I think we are in this kind of like distraction battle in some way that's gotten a little bit worse. Well, and you just brought to my mind too, as you were reading that, like one of our most successful, uh, successful, I don't like using that terminology, sure. but like yeah. one of the most Fruitful. That's a better mm -hmm. word. One of the most fruitful things that we did at the Catholic Center. And, you know, it wasn't droves and droves of students, but we had a silent retreat every semester where oh, we had like 20 awesome. students who would go on this retreat on a, on a semester basis. And they always left that with like, that's exactly what I needed. And as I've gotten older and as I've like, like d dove deeper into my relationship with Christ, I don't need to go on these like fluffy retreats. I mean, some of them are really good. Don't get me wrong. But what I need is just silence with our Lord. Mm. Um, and I think the last few retreats I've gone on, that's all I've done. It's like I, I just go to a retreat house like with the Dominican sisters up north and, and spend time in silence. Or this last time I went to San Diego and 
found a retreat house down there and had a spiritual director I met with twice, but was in silence and read a few books. Like it was just exactly what I needed. And that's, I, I think you're, that book is, I'm like, I want to read it. <laughs> it looks like a really good book. It's super powerful, the idea of silence. It, you remind me of um, when I worked at Disney, I used to take my team on retreats too, like, you know, business retreats. Mm-hmm. And we would do fun stuff. I took them deep sea fishing one time. We went like rock climbing. And then I would always try to make a thematic out of it. Like the rock climbing was different paths to achieve the summit and yada, yada. I took them one time was before I was before my reversion to the faith and certainly before I was ordained, I took them to the um, meditation gardens in the Pacific Palisades, mm. which I don't know if you've ever been to off of Sunset Boulevard. I it's have actually. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, just like it's a garden, it's a lake. And I think they're, I don't know if they're Buddhist or they're, they're something. It's very new or maybe it's a new age thing. But just the garden was, you know, this beautiful place. And then on the benches, they would have different quotes from like different people that like Paramahansa Yogananda and Gandhi and all these different things. And there was a quote from the Psalms mm. and it was, be still and know that I am God. Mm. And whenever I saw that, I was like, wow, it's so powerful. And so I decided I'm going to take my team to this. And the agenda is going to be non-doing. That's the whole thing. We spent 45 minutes there. I said, you can't talk to anybody. All you got to do is just be still, you know, and, 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 and whatever. Of course, I wasn't like, saying anything religious about it, just just be still and relax, right? I got more feedback on that 45 minute that I enabled for these this group of people than anything I'd ever taken them to before. And this is like, you know, full expense account, the whole nine yards. That is the one they're like, that was amazing. You know what I mean? And so thanks be to God, because my hope is maybe someone, you know, who aren't Christian or didn't believe or whatever, or had no belief at all, could have drawn a little bit closer mm. to the transcendent in that process, mm. but it's silence, yeah. solitude. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're making my mind think like, I mean, cause we're kind of in a rebirth stage right now with call, right? Like it's, it's got a great mission. Um, and I, I'm trying to like really pray through like, okay, as a national organization, what's, what's the national office going to do as we kind of continue to grow Latino leaders for the future. Um, so I'm currently looking at like, you know, through our baptismal call, right? We're priest, prophet, and king. Amen. And through the the priesthood, we're called to grow in the apostolic, into in the intellectual, human, and spiritual capacities, right? So as Latino leaders, we need to grow in these four areas. So that's what I envision like national to do is mm. help grow our Latino er, uh, leaders through these four areas. But thinking about, okay, the spiritual component, I know one thing I'm, I, you know, I, I need to make sure that I can find the funding to make this all happen, but I really desire to make sure that each member of call, if they don't already have one, has a spiritual director. Mm. And I'm hoping that we're able to do, you know, regional retreats for all the call members in each of the different chapters. One area that I hadn't, I mean, I had thought about, you know, a big retreat, but I hadn't thought about the silent retreat component. That's, I mean, that's great. That that might be exactly what they need too. So as I continue to dream and vision forward, um, thank you for that idea. Yeah, I'm grateful. no worries. You mentioned apathy as maybe on the spiritual dimension, an obstacle, maybe more broadly than just spiritual. But as you think of the Latino population specifically, do you see any obstacles? I mean, you talked about this dynamic of we're growing, but we're also leaving the sort of like, you know, every day more Latino, more, more Latinos in the Catholic church every day, less, less Catholics that are Latino, right? At same, same time. What are the obstacles we have? Like, what are the things we need to do? I think it's probably a notion of relevance. Um, I think similar to what we had talked about a little bit earlier, where folks um, potentially, you know, their grandparents or even their parents maybe practice. I mean, it's kind of my experience, right? Like (laughs) where I grew up in the household where everybody was very where my parents were very active, but I didn't see it as relevant. Um, So how do we help Latino youth recognize the relevance of of the faith in their everyday life? That's probably one of the biggest obstacles. I mean, I think, sure, catechetical, there's a lot of misinformation on what the church believes and what doesn't the church believe. But the relevance and that catechetical component go hand in hand. You can't separate it. Um, and and you, I, I know I'm going to go back to the basics again, but you have to help people have that encounter with Christ because no matter how much you do in the intellectual side or no yeah. much how much you do on the catechetical side, like if they don't have a relationship with him, they're going to leave. Absolutely. Like, yeah. And I mean, if there's, that's why I've got a daughter, she's 10 years old, who's the light of my life. Mm. And there are like three things that I'm really trying to help her grow in. I'm just helping her build that relationship with Christ, help her love the Eucharist. Like we are the only ones that have this like beautiful gift from our Lord. And I just want her to fall in love with, with the Eucharist. 
and then also understand and have an understanding of Catholic social teaching from from um, conception to natural death. And just because we don't fit a political party, and to me, that's a real blessing. I love that. Of course. <laughs> um, so for my daughter to like, and I hope that she's able to like fall in love with all three of those things. Because if she does, my hope is she won't leave the church also, right? Um, so in, in some sense, like that's what I hope for all all Latinos to have, but also just in general, all Catholics to have is like a real love of our Lord in the Eucharist and an understanding that all life is sacred. That's beautiful. I think you, you hit upon also what may also be an additional obstacle that we have, and maybe not just Latinos, but everyone, is that the comment you just made about us not fitting a political party. We're at a moment right now where there is, I've never seen it, perhaps you have, I don't know, I've never seen it or felt it, the sense of this polarization and need to be an either or. And it's particularly difficult when your faith is a both and, which is what Catholicism is, right? I try to tell my, you know, people that care to ask, I say, well, I don't look left or right, I look up. And that's basically how I summarize that. Because it is very difficult to identify, at least with American political um, construct, the, the church's teachings. They're not compartmentalized in one way in that, in that way. And I think that people have a desire to want to quickly see which side they're on. And I, I don't know that I've felt that as much as I do today. Like, which side are you on on, the, on these particular things? Do you, do you see it similarly? Oh, absolutely. And even when I interviewed for this job, I... I they said, you know, what do you think an obstacle is? I'm like, this is an obstacle. Like folks are going to either put me in one camp or another and I'm neither. Like, so don't even try. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and I think that, you know, that I have seen that polarization within families. I've seen it on the college campus. I've seen it in our church. And again, like, why can't we just focus on who we are as Catholic? We are here to follow Christ and his teachings and love all creation as they have been created. Amen. Um, I know it's easier said than done, so I, I don't want to like minimize that also. Um, but we can't, we don't fit any agenda. Yeah, <laughs> we fit the agenda of Christ, and that's what makes it so cool in a way. It's so countercultural. It's so you know kind of revolutionary. It's the kind of thing that you know young people should be like really excited about, just because it's like the exact opposite of the norm. <laughs> you know true. what I mean? It's true. It's not the status quo. You know. <laughs> It's like we're anti-death penalty and pro-life. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like we're you can carve your own way. You can be a rogue. You know what I mean? Be different. You would think that that's what young people want to do. I love that perspective. I might use it. Yeah. There you go. I think so. I know that um, you got a lot of things going on, and we got to get you um, on your way. Before we get to um, our fun rapid-fire questions and wait what, um, obviously you're coming into this new role. You're a big part of the reason why we started, well, call is the reason we started this show. And obviously you've been very involved in it since you've arrived. And, you know, I'd love for you to, you know, share with people, not just how to get in touch with you, because I mean, that, that's more obvious for you as a guest than maybe any other guest, because the show talks about call all the time. But what do you want people to know about what you're going to be doing? Like, what do you, what do you want them to be thinking about or praying for specifically? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I really desire our church to grow and I desire Christ to help us, like guide us in what he, he desires you to do. So I'll just kind of give you my favorite saint. I love St. Catherine of Siena. She's awesome. She's incredible. Awesome. Um, she, I don't know. She just had this real, like, again, real, like love of the Eucharist, real love of our Lord and really just desired to do God's will. Amen. And that's what I desire of every single person that I interact with, but that I I I will interact with or have interact with through the Catholic Association of Latino mm. Leaders. So if that's something you crave, if you desire to grow in relationship with him so that you can listen more clearly to what God is calling you to do in your family, in the workplace, in whatever facet God might be calling you into, this is the organization for you. Um, how that will look, we are shaping that now. And I'm, I'm excited for the further future. I love St. Catherine because also she was like such like a, she was a kind of a firebrand too, right? I mean, she was like St. Joan of Arc or maybe Hildebrand, Hildebrand um, Hildegard rather, um, in the sense that, you know, she was a laywoman and she went and, you know, told the popes what's up. You know, she's like, hey, you know what? You're kind of messing this up and we got to figure this out. And I, I love that she can also give a voice to people who may feel that they're 
from an ecclesial standpoint, sort of outside the bounds of like who can make a difference. You know what I mean? She's a great patron for that. I just love her. So I love that. And the quote, be who you're called to be and you'll set the world on fire is just something I live by. And I that really sums her up, though. That yeah. is like literally sums her up. Yeah. I said firebrand. She used fire in the quote. <laughs> like, perfect. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I definitely uh, pray for that as well. We'll ask for her intercession. And um, of course, I hope all the best for you and your new role. Thank you. And in call, I think it's serving an incredibly important pur- uh, purpose right now in the church. And so um, going to be awesome to watch what happens. Okay, so thanks. And thank you for being here. All righty, Rosie, we're going to play Wait What? You ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready. All right. So three questions as you know how to play the game. Um, and uh, we're going to want your answer and then also want to know a little bit about your rationale. So here's question number one. Rosie, a Jesuit, a Dominican, and a Benedictine are sent by their superiors on an evangelization, evangelization mission to Mars, traveling on Sir Richard Branson's new space airlines. <laughs> Who is flying first? business and coach oh jeez a jesuit dominican and a benedictine which of them is flying first business or coach on sir richard branson's new space airline on a mission to mars to evangelize well first class is jesuits <laughs> okay <laughs> i love them they're great guys um yeah um and then the dominicans would be um the business class business yeah. okay and then the benedictines on on the latter um, my rationale. <laughs> I love all those guys. They're just incredible men. Um, and I think the first two, when people ask me, like, what is your spirituality? I am like a mix of Dominican and Jesuit, like Ignatian. Oh, wow. That's cool. It, it just is because yeah. I grew up in a college campus ministry, right? For sure. That I was Dominican. That and then I was formed by the Jesuits through the Jesuit School of Theology. Um, yeah. So I'm very Ignatian, but very Dominican. So anyhow, I, the reason, I don't know. I, the the Dominicans are very practical, and I think that that's why I see them kind of in more like the business class um, and first class with the Jesuits. I love the guys, but, you know, they know how to fundraise. <laughs> they do. And, and they also know, like, they, they like a little bit of the bougie life. Not all of them, but some of them. <laughs> and St. Ignatius was loaded before he had his conversion. So, uh, so that's why I would know. place him in that order. I love it. I yeah. would have picked it the same way, although I would not have had any rationale such as, such, as good as yours. So uh, <laughs> congrats for that. All right. Good job there, Rosie. Question number two. You are given a massive multi-million dollar grant to establish and build out a Latin American outpost for call. But the benefactor has stipulated that you personally need to oversee it, so you'll need to move there, and that the outpost can only be based in either Havana, Cuba, or San Juan, Puerto Rico. Mm. Which do you pick? Uh, San Juan. Because my, my family is all there, so oh, okay. <laughs> it'd be great to be there and close to them. Um, I mean, both locations would be beautiful, right? Um, but yeah, just being close to my family, I think, would be something that's really important. So sorry, Dad, not going to Cuba, Yeah, right? no, uh, not not yet, at least. <laughs> okay, very good. And you need to live there, so you'd be you'd be good with, uh, with San Juan. Oh, yeah. Awesome. It's, and I love my family that still lives there. All right, last question, multiple choice. Ready? Which of these is false about New Mexico? Before there was Napa or even California wine, two Franciscan monks created the first wine growing region in the United States along the Rio Grande in New Mexico in 1629. Number two, Santa Fe is the nation's second highest state capital. 7,200 feet above sea level, only the mile high city of Denver is at a higher altitude or sombreros are fun and so is dancing, but you better not dance while wearing a sombrero in New Mexico because it's illegal. (laughs) Which of those three is false? The third one. Wrong. Oh, really? Santa Fe is the nation's highest capital, not the second. It's actually above Denver. And yes, one of these quirky, still on the books laws that nobody can explain is it is illegal to dance with a sombrero, wearing a sombrero in New Mexico. What? Oh, I I had no idea. I confirmed this like nine times on different websites. It is one of those bizarre laws that's still on the books and nobody's gotten rid of. Oh, that's crazy. So. Yeah. Well, the first one I knew was real because I just went on a road trip and we went through New Mexico and I saw saw the wine wine country. Is it good wine? Well, I didn't have any, but it was beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's great. I didn't know that either, by the way. And uh, well, very good. Well, awesome. So uh, there is no right or wrong answers, obviously, even though you got that last one wrong. So uh, thank you for playing. Um, I will obviously, uh, once again, may God prosper all the work that you're doing at Call. And uh, thank you for being here on the show. And I remind everybody who is listening to subscribe, to follow the work of Call. Go to call-usa.org if you want to find out more. 
Share this show with your friends and family, and we'll see you again next time on another episode of Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Castan and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.